Hi there. This is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode number five. More translations from the editorial. An article by Gene Wolfe. An article, Amanda? Yes, an article and not a story. So we're going to step out of our short-lived usual (laughs) so far and talk about something that's not a short story. It's a article published in a fanzine called Alien Critic, issue number nine. And it's a description of how an editor for a magazine handles their interactions with writers. So this is Gene Wolfe addressing what might be writer questions about what it's like to be on the other end of the editorial process. So instead of receiving comments from the editor, why the editor might make those comments and what might be behind them. Okay. And it starts out, the very first paragraph is, I enjoyed Marion Bradley's, quote, translations from the editorial in the Alien Critic number six and felt the readers might like to hear from the other end, so to speak, of the editorial desk. The next grade, or perhaps two or three grades up in magazines. (laughs) So we're already into something referential and interesting here, and that is that Gene Wolfe wrote this article in response to an article written by Marion Zimmer Bradley three issues ago in the Alien Critic fanzine. Wow. Riveting meowing from... (laughs) 30 to 40 years ago. Well, it does seem a little meowy, as you might say, in that he is saying that he's two or three grades up mm-hmm. in magazines. And we can get into what kind of magazine he's in in a minute. But Marion Zimmer Bradley opens her article from Alien Critic 6 about how she's been earning her living for 20 years as a professional freelance writer. And she has always wondered what it would be like on the other side of the desk. And she had told herself, she says, that if she were an editor, she would always level with her writers. She would (laughs) never, never use weasel words. And she would faithfully read the entire slush pile, try hard to discover new writers instead of going all out for big names, and make her editorial reports promptly and send out all checks by return mail. Well, (laughs) she says... She recently survived an 11-month stretch as features editor for a magazine which shall be nameless. And since I understand that almost all freelance writers daydream of someday being on the other side of the desk, here is a brief rundown of her safari through slush pile country. She goes on to describe that she worked for a very basic magazine. She was working for an old-time publisher, one of those chaps who brags that he used to edit a string of 24 pulps. Oh, Yes. (laughs) She also says he used to pay his editors $15 a week and has never believed that brains come any higher than that. He still brags that he can get by with paying the lowest rates in the business. And as a result, the manuscript mailing is all slush pile. Oh, boy. So she talks about how painful it is as an editor for such a low paid publication to put together anything worth reading. 
how the slush pile is a slush pile for a reason that anybody who could get actual money for their writing would obviously be submitting it to a higher grade of magazine. And because she can pay so little, she can't demand or expect or attract anything like good writing. Okay. And so she goes on to use lots of weasel words um, (laughs) with the writers that she does work with, because if she finds anyone that writes anything even halfway worth reading... It's actually hard to get them to accept the very low rate of pay that she offers. (laughs) So then she gives a series of quotes from her editorial stockpile, the the default phrases she uses, and then explains what they're actually saying. (laughs) Okay. There are quite a few examples. You pick a few that are your favorite, maybe? (laughs) Well, quote, I have taken the liberty of rearranging and editing your material slightly, end quote. The translation is, I had to rewrite the damn thing from end to end. If you look at your manuscript and see what I did with it, you might learn something. And next time, your pride and my sweat can both be spared. (laughs) All our material is staff written, and we are not considering outside contributions at this time. We don't buy hard porno. We don't buy kitty stories. We don't buy material handwritten in pink magic marker. We don't buy the work of illiterate amateurs who don't know their trade, and I'm too busy and you're too hopeless for me to educate you. Get lost. Oh, wow. So she's a little bit salty, but she seems to have come by that saltiness at least somewhat honestly because she worked for someone who wouldn't shell out a penny for anything. And if she couldn't find anything even halfway publishable that could be turned into something actually publishable through editorial work, she had to write enough to fill the pages. So as an editor, she'd be sometimes called upon to produce a 9,000-word article in an afternoon. Oh, man. Complete with illustrations because the publisher wouldn't pay for illustrations. It's horrible. It does sound horrible. It sounds like a horrible way to make a not living. Well, you said she was working for a man who bragged at 24 pulps was his? Yes, That's crazy, and I think goes to show why those were called pulps, and most of those magazines are probably not around anymore. Right, because they were trying to make a quick buck or keep someone's head above water, and they just put through an enormous amount of printed matter, whether it qualified as a story or not. Wow. And just the pressure of production is the thing that came through in her letter for me, that there's just this enormous weight of you have to produce things. And incidentally, it seems huh. to connect pretty strongly to the modern era. I, I was going to say, the content treadmill the is The content not, treadmill is what we're talking about not here. not anything new. Yeah. But there are plenty of people on the content treadmill that are hoping to maybe make $15 a week in <laughs> Google Ads from it. Yeah, true. Yeah. If anything, I think that the rate of pay has possibly gotten worse. Yeah. Yeah, So she's lamenting all these difficulties. She's talking about how bad digging through the slush pile is. She complains about people not being able to spell, that they need to find, you know, they need to learn the basics before they try to submit things, that payment is not up to her as an editor. She'd like to be able to pay money because if she could pay money, she could actually attract agented work that would be probably worth something, that she would have been delighted to work with agents, that as an editor, she contacted agents, but they wouldn't send their clients work to her because they knew how poorly her publication paid. Yeah. Yeah. So then that brings us to Jean Wolfe's article, 
which is in response to hers, and it explains his what initially sounded catty, but now just sounds realistic, (laughs) the next grade or perhaps two or three grades up in magazines. So, of course, every reader of Wolf knows that he was a senior editor of some trade publication. Is that correct? That is correct. However, it's not true. Oh, tell me more. So it's often repeated that he was the senior editor of plant engineering, which was a industrial magazine where so it's like robotics conveyor belts pringles making machines no no well yes essentially (laughs) yes pringles making machines but things too where it's like different types of oils like paints you would put on these types of machines sounds fascinating it does doesn't it (laughs) so he started working there in 72 And according to him, he quit in 1984. However, the plant engineering website, at least the time of this recording, they have an obituary for Gene Wolfe there because he was a longtime senior editor, a senior editor. They say that he he worked until 1986. So he was a senior editor on it with a staff. There were multiple other senior editors. And so he wasn't the head of the magazine, but... It's one thing that he addressed because apparently somebody put it into print one time that he was the senior editor of the magazine and essentially like he was the one in charge. But he was like, no, I I wasn't. I've tried to correct that. But once something's in print, it's in print. Right. So just to clarify, it's a large enough publication that it had multiple senior editors of different departments. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, so he goes on in his article to talk about what it's like to be a senior editor in a magazine. And he says that at the time of this article, he'd been there for about a year. And it's one of the top business publications in the country. So yeah, two or three grades above. He's really not from a literary standpoint, but from a monetary and prestige within its own genre or its (laughs) own niche. He's underselling it by saying two or three grades above. He says that the money is good, and this is very distinct from Marion Zimmer Bradley's description, substantially better than I was making as a mechanical engineer. The expense account ceiling is 400 a month. If you run over that, you're expected to fly lower until you have made up the difference. So plenty of money available, it sounds like, and some flexibility in how you manage that. So not a rigid or tightly controlled situation. Well. Makes me wonder how much they were paying him as a process engineer, too. (laughs) Right. Well, I have a hard time imagining someone in any kind of publication environment making more than an engineer. But maybe that's because my perspective is skewed by, well, software engineering and, and and the depths to which, you know, literary fiction and genre fiction have sunk with modern publication rates. Yeah. And with academia, too. Well, yeah, I forget that too sometimes. A lot of my perception is based on the academic environment where you can write for nothing but prestige. The exposure, it'll be good for you. Yep. Nobody ever died of exposure. Nope. So just an aside in here. So while this may have been a prestigious journal, it also seems to be a very time-bound journal in the sense that if you try to find the magazines online or go to libraries to try to see if they're on the stacks or if they have microfilm. It's not really something 
that you're able to find very easily. So there's no sense in which anyone publishing this thought that it would endure. It was very much of the moment. Yes. So whatever the innovation in, I don't know, robots that move things or make things or whatever the innovations in materials for particular applications, that is very much of the moment. Those things are going to change. Yeah. Unlike if we were to compare it to the modern content mill, unlike Marion Zimmer Bradley's magazine, <laughs> which would be called Evergreen, <laughs> Gene Wolf was working on things that were the opposite. They were very timely. Yeah. Not even annuals, but monthlyals. Yeah. Okay. He says that he paid or his publication paid authors $35 per magazine page on acceptance. Not too great, perhaps, but you could live by writing for us at that rate. So I always have a hard time imagining these kinds of conversions, but $35 per magazine page, that presumably would include any illustrations and anything else taking up magazine page space. Yeah, diagrams or photos of the factory floor. Right. So, and it's interesting, he says that 35 per magazine paid because it was $60 that he got paid for the short story in Sir Magazine. Now, granted, that was almost a decade for, but that was three pages, maybe four if you count, because the last couple of paragraphs were on an end page with a lot of advertisements surrounding the words. So I don't know exactly how they counted magazine pages at the time. Right. But that's a, quite a bit less than what this publication, what plant engineering is paying. Right. And for a literary product instead of, again, something that's just content. Yeah. And then he starts to disagree, I guess, with Marion Zimmer <laughs> But without explicitly calling her out, he is writing this in response to her. He says he doesn't give a damn whether an author can spell or not. I can't spell either. But I can use a dictionary, and what I don't catch, peerless secretary Mary Jane will, or if she doesn't, copy editor Nancy will, and anything that gets past her will get got by the managing editor. Nothing, but nothing gets past the managing editor. So he didn't run this sentence through the managing editor. <laughs> well, this is published in a fanzine. Yeah, so. I assume all the listeners will know what a fanzine is, but they were a poorly produced most of these were Xeroxed or mimeographed or another thing that they do is called uh, spirit copying. So you're using alcohol uh, spirits to do the copying. And so low numbers of publication, like low in, production value, low production value. Anybody that sent in a letter or something like it, it was liable to end up in the fanzine. So. Right. And alongside this low production value very small print run kind of thing, you have a lot of fanzines that have letters, comments, and a number of things from famous authors. Gene Wolfe stuff pops up in a lot of fanzines, and it's alongside other notable authors just in this issue. I think it's, is there, it's Samuel Delaney yeah. has a letter included. And then I've seen Arthur C. Clarke and a variety of prominent names pop up. And obviously, Wolf is in contact or in conversation here with Marion Zimmer Bradley, who's not unknown. Yeah. Now she's more known for, well, being a controversial or just reprehensible figure. But at the time, she's very, very well known and very popular as a fantasy author. Yeah. And we won't go into that right now. That's another episode. <laughs> yeah. 
The other thing, too, he mentions there, I've never seen an agented manuscript come in. Right. So. Which is in direct contrast to what Bradley is talking about, is wanting agented manuscripts and not being able to get them. I can't imagine, though, that anybody writing for plant engineering needs an agent because what Wolf describes, which I think is also in a way what Marion Zimmer Bradley is describing, although she doesn't seem to be clear on this, is that it doesn't matter if it's agented or in the slush pile. If it's worth reading, I will want to read it and I will want to include it. He says, we do like authors who know the facts, recount them lucidly, if not grammatically, and can take or beg or even draw good <laughs> pictures. We read everything that comes in, at least far enough to tell if we want it or not. Sure, we like new typewriter ribbons and double spacing and one side of the paper and wide margins, but we read everything readable. So what he's getting at here is what I think we all kind of know but don't want to admit is that Really good writing does stand out, even if you haven't followed all of the rules Yeah, to be noticed. Well, and I think the key line that you read there is at least enough to tell if we want it or not. And I think a lot of people don't realize how easy it is. If you are a subject matter expert is something that we would probably term it nowadays. But if you know the subject you're speaking on, whether that's science fiction, fantasy, robotics on an engineering floor, anything like that, you can very quickly tell if somebody knows what they're talking about. You can tell if they're avoiding like actual key point because they don't understand how something's going. You can pick out, these days we'd call it copy pasta, the more technical term, plagiarism. <laughs> right? So if you're pretending like you have uh, expertise that you don't, it's very readily apparent to somebody who actually works on the material day in and day out. Right. And that's part of why, as bleak as the writing landscape can seem, where it's difficult to be noticed in a sea of voices, there are freelance writers who make quite healthy incomes because they are freelance writers in a niche subject that requires a lot of content. And so as bad as pay rates can be for content mills, you can be paid $1 to $3 per word if you are writing in one of the in-demand content niches. A truly expert, but we're talking about truly expert in something. Yeah, we're not talking about a WikiHow article on no. tying your shoes. No. <laughs> Complete no. with 37 steps and photos. <laughs> <laughs> Written now by AI. Yeah. So he goes on to describe more aspects of what life is like as an editor. He identifies things that he dislikes, and he talks about what he rejects and why if something's no content. So all puffs and generalities and padding, which I think is what you were just describing. Yeah, and interestingly enough, 90% of the articles we reject fall in this category. Right. And part of me is assuming, and maybe this is an incorrect assumption on my part, but I don't think somebody wakes up and like, hey, I'm going to send an article off to plant engineering today. <laughs> it seems more like they would have to be familiar with the publication because it seems yes. specialized. Like, Well, and I think that it would probably be that they think they know it because they have some minimal level of familiarity, but they don't. <sighs> Dunning-Kruger so, effect. Yeah, is, oh, okay, it's I at play here. Yeah, I hadn't been thinking about that. So some 
low-level supervisor or manager in a plant who sees plant engineering come through the office and thinks, oh, I can make extra money doing that, and then writing about something that they don't genuinely understand. Yeah. Not right for us. This is another 8 or 9%. And so that seems to be that somebody's pitching an article or submitting an article that just does not fit the niche. It maybe is tangentially related to manufacture or somehow is just not in the area that they primarily publish in. Too similar to something already in stock. This one is much rarer than you'd think. Uh, too hot. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> would take us to court and we might lose. Knife your enemies somewhere else, which is hilarious to think about plant engineering having a knife fight, metaphorical or not. Mm -hmm. And yet he put it in there because even though he's, what did he say? He's been there about a year? Yes. So already he's had articles come across his desk that are too hot which he leaves it just vague enough that I'm imagining all sorts of nonsense, but I'm guessing this is probably more in the area of intellectual property violations and not respecting current patents. I thought about that. The thing I thought more about was criticism of something a manufacturer or oh. production company is doing. Yes. So somebody being critical of someone's process or mm -hmm. someone's product. Okay, that yeah, that makes more sense. I hadn't thought about it from that angle. Yeah. Well, and it's right here that we see what you were talking about earlier, sort of the misrepresentation of him as the senior editor. Here he says, editors such as I, there are currently eight. So at Plant Engineering, he was one of eight, must write three pieces a year. We must but, or write ourselves three more a month. And I think he means, I buy, think that buy. Yeah. I think that's the low production value we were talking <laughs> yeah. about. On these, we buy if we can, write if we must. As well as I can remember, I've written five of these. So he's required to produce three per year, and he's written an additional five articles to fill in what he couldn't obtain enough of himself, which is what Marion Zimmer Bradley's talking about at her publication, that if she doesn't get enough stuff to fill the magazine, that she's going to have to produce a 9,000 word article in an afternoon in order to fill space. Okay. That makes sense. Of course, he's not, he's getting more than an afternoon to do it. <laughs> yes. His production schedule seems to be much more reasonable. He says that they're short on desks and that he splits an office with someone else he enjoys working from home one week out of two, and it's nice to work in his pajamas. <laughs> so even then, we're having office space shortages. Yeah. I like it says, the desk shortage will be over, air quote, soon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I like that work from home or flexible work was a thing that he was interested in. So then he goes on to talk about the translations, translations from the editorial, where he gives the little phrases that he uses, and then what they, are, what they secretly mean. Did any of these jump out at you? Yes. The first one here, it has suddenly struck me that, and then the translation, I need a certain type of article, and that I may be able to talk you into actually writing it, and from you it might be good. That's an interesting thing there, because he could be rejecting an article, but he's trying to reword the rejection. So it's like, okay, I don't want this, but if you could write me this, we'd actually pay you for it. Right. 
where he's identifying someone capable of writing and then trying to feed them the topic that he will actually have space for. Yeah. And actually, the second one, too, struck me as funny, where it's this is to confirm our interest and basically like, hey, we're actually going to need content. Like, right. We wanted this and you haven't delivered it yet. That's a, you pitched something. Now put it together. Yeah. So and those are uh, those type of comments. The number of emails that I get in my inbox like this is to confirm our interest. And I just had I kind of had to chuckle on that because it still happens today. Right. There's this communication. Hey, get it to me. Yeah. <laughs> One of the ones I liked, unfortunately, our editorial board feels, and then the translation is, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So there's our policy demands exclusive submission. That one's kind of funny because even within the year that he was there, he's had people that submitted an article and then plant engineering purchased it came out in a competitor's magazine before plant engineering got it out. So his translation, it's really embarrassing when the article we bought from you turns up in a competitor's magazine a month before we're ready to run it. And that one is um, still relevant today. Like anytime you're submitting, whether exclusive rights, you have to let us know right away if somebody else like right away in the submission process, even if somebody else has it or they don't even want you to submit it multiple places at once. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, any writers that are out there, you know, (laughs) read before you. (laughs) Yes. Well, and that question or that translation ties into another one. Your article will definitely appear. And then the translation is, if we buy it, we print it, but not next week. We try to have an inventory. And if we print (laughs) your article right away, somebody else's gets stale. And so that idea that the writer might be impatient Mm -hmm. to see it appear, but they have to understand that you don't produce the content the night before you run it. (laughs) You have it in the hopper. And it's ready to go in later. Well, and the interesting thing there, too, is the content has already been paid for. Yes. And they're asking, why haven't they seen it in the magazine (laughs) yet? It's like, you got paid. Yeah, you were paid for your work. Stop being impatient to see it appear, which is kind of hilarious when I think about it in terms of plant engineering. But understandable when I think about it in terms of if I've sold a story, I definitely would want to... I would be very impatient to see it in print because selling it would be almost, okay, not actually, but almost beside the point because I want to see it in print. I want to have that confirmation that my work is worth something. Yeah. And I think that would be true for a writer of a technical topic as much as for, well, maybe not as much as, but as it is for. Yeah. It's at least a component there that goes into the writing of it. So yeah, the, the love of the thing itself and not just the love of the money. Yeah. One of these here that calls out in an oddly specific translation, haven't we seen this before in print? (laughs) That one's special. That one is. The managing editor wrote this in 1962. Oddly specific year for him. (laughs) (laughs) Never submit here again. Right. So somebody plagiarizing that same magazine's content. Uh Uh-huh. Which it must have happened. Yeah, it must have happened. But then part of me is like, wow, that's really dumb. But then the other part of me goes back to what he said at the beginning, where you can make good money on the side. So if somebody's being lazy and they're not as ethical, Mm -hmm. you know, they could be, I could imagine scenarios where they would be 
going back through old issues and even from other similar types of trade magazines and kind of lightly reworking to update it and then submit it under their own name. Right. And imagine as an editor trying to catch these things in a time before searchable files. Yeah, I can't. I'm not even really sure how. Well, it would have have to be institutional memory. Yeah. You just have to have people who know. Yeah, you'd have to have an encyclopedia brain that just remembered all this. Well, and if it was still the managing editor, they would know. I like lax organization. What the hell is it about? (laughs) You keep jumping (laughs) around. (laughs) Well, the article ends quite suddenly. He has a quote. It seems to me there is too much in your outline for a single article and then translates it. I need a series. How would you like $105 every six weeks for a year? Which does sound like a pretty good offer, even today. Yeah. And then the fanzine editor has inserted at the end, yes, it does end abruptly, but that's all he wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Gene Wolfe gave his translations from the editorial. He did not write a conclusion. He just stopped and Alien Critic printed it. And apparently he didn't even sign his name at the end. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it has his name at the beginning. Right. But it he didn't sign off Gene Wolfe. It just ends, apparently. Yes, it ends. And there we are in the world of articles by famous speculative fiction authors, mm-hmm. Marion Zimmer Bradley and Gene Wolfe, about what it's like to be a magazine editor. Yeah. And I would just remind people that are listening that these articles are very old, these do not necessarily reflect the publishing industry as it exists today. So, Yes, but it is interesting how, while the publishing industry has probably changed in some pretty dramatic ways, I'm not in it, so I, I can't tell how. Mm-hmm. I'm sure someone with experience could talk more about those changes. The concerns of writers seem to be pretty similar. How can I know how to succeed at this? And Marion Zimmer Bradley's article begins to hint at this, which is you have to be a good writer. You just have to be a good writer. And then you have to keep submitting to a variety of places. And you, Mm -hmm. of course, you'll try to submit to the best possible places that will take your stuff. But if you start at the bottom, they're far more likely to take it if it's worth reading. Yeah. And so from that you would have to extract the implied lesson, which is if you're getting rejected from a very low tier magazine, you might be getting rejected because you're not a good writer. You might also be getting rejected because you're submitting it to a magazine that's just not the right place for it, or because they happen to have something very similar, which Gene Wolfe calls out as being not a very frequent thing, but it is a thing that happens. Yeah. And then they go on to say, basically, all Gene Wolfe wants as an editor is something that he is capable of reading that is factually correct and lucid. Mm -hmm. And then he'll fix all, or his secretary (laughs) or the dictionary will fix all the spelling mistakes. Yeah. It's interesting to juxtapose that with Wolfe's comment from the previous episode about his story where with the dead man, he shopped it around till he found the right editor but then he like reworked and then also sold the other stories that had previously been rejected once he um, got things sorted out. Right. So that there's a combination of, yeah, you need your break, but you also need to learn how to operate within the publishing ecosystem. Yeah. And I think okay. a lot of people that want to be in the arts 
it seems to me like they want to be known as, you know, insert whatever. I want to be known as a fantasy author. I want to be known as a famous YouTuber. I want to be known as, you know, a, a painter a, or yeah, painter, yeah. somebody from TV. They more want their name on either a book or a movie or whatever than they actually want to do all the hidden work that's required for you to gain the skills so you can actually craft something. And I think that's kind of the like a bulk of the advice there is that you need to do the hard work and there's no easy trick for your paper to float to the top of the slush pile. No one simple trick. <laughs> no Editors hate him. Exactly. <laughs> it, honestly, if there was a simple trick, I think Marion Zimmer Bradley and Gene Wolfe would be tickled to death because then they wouldn't have all the junk in the slush pile. Right. So, And anything that comes across as a trick or as a technique or this will make your chances better is at best some approximation of you have become a good artist, a good writer, a good actor. Like, there's no there's no trick to breaking through other than being good. And anything that seems like a trick is exists to the degree that it actually is you becoming or it's approximating you becoming good at your art. Yeah. So now is the time for me to start recognizing why I haven't published a story yet. Because <laughs> uh, you just got to put more work in. Yeah. Well, and I think that the thing that we often mistake within ourselves or culturally people mistake as a desire to do something is not a desire to do the thing. It's a desire for celebrity disguised yeah. as the desire to do the thing. No, I agree with that. And that's a painful thing to know and notice within yourself because it's easy to think of your own motives as pure. And it's like, no, I just want to create this thing. But most of the time, our motives are not as pure as we think they are. It's almost impossible to hold in your mind or hold in your intention the desire to do the thing for its own sake because you might be able to pay lip service to that. I think I can pay lip service to that, but it's almost instantaneous that I will say, it's worth doing whether I ever sell a story or not, <laughs> but I want to sell a story. Yeah. It's worth doing whether this book ever gets published or not, but I'm not going to feel justified in having spent a year on that novel if nothing, as in money and recognition, ever mm -hmm. comes from it. Yeah. And I think it's worth noticing that Gene Wolfe started writing because he wanted to earn money. Yeah, to pay for furniture in his apartment. Yes. And he almost immediately became addicted to writing as a hobby and found it fulfilling, even though it was a solid decade before he sold a story. Wow. They say the 10,000 hours or 10 years. But there it is, literally illustrated. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to discuss about this letter? Well, I was struck by the little blurb that's below it that is presented without context, without explanation, and without justification. Did your eyes happen to stray to the next entry in Alien Critic? It did. Did you have any thoughts on this brochure from the Journal of Psychohistory? I actually did some research on that. You did. Okay, yeah. so for those of you who don't have a copy of Alien Critic 9 in front of you, 
It's in simple typeface, looking just like everything around it, bracketed out with asterisks as each of the articles and letters are. Quote, in 1907, a Jewish doctor poisoned Hitler's mother while treating her for breast cancer. In 1918, Hitler was himself hospitalized from gas poisoning in the war and hallucinated a summons from on high to reverse Germany's defeat. In 1941, Hitler personally ordered removal of, quote, the Jewish cancer, end quote, from the breast of Germany through the use of poison gas. Six million Jews died as a result. I'm sorry, but what the hell is this? I had the same reaction because I thought this was some sort of bad off-color humor attempt. At a- I mean, I've heard some terrible jokes, but... I didn't know what to make of it. It seemed dropped in out of nowhere for no reason and for no reason that I could imagine. Yeah, same here. I thought it was a bad Jewish joke. Right. And it doesn't help. There's no context. But then it mentions the Journal of Psychohistory. Right. So it's credited to a brochure for the History of Childhood Quarterly, the Journal of Psychohistory. Yeah. And that's what initially confirmed my assumption in my mind that this was a joke because in a science fiction fanzine, psychohistory, I'm thinking Asimov's foundation. Foundation, exactly. Yeah. And so I was just like, wow, have times changed that much? Right. Well, it's worse than you thought. Oh, dear. Because it's not a joke. Oh, dear. This is a serious piece of... What am I looking for? I'm not not a serious piece of literature. It's from an actual brochure. It's a promo. Yes, a promo. So the Journal of Psychohistory, apparently it's still around today, was a actual journal that they wrote for this. Okay. So I went back and found some commentary from the time and several people are like, yeah, this is real, but it's so ridiculous. It's become a self-parody. So somebody wrote this as an actual analysis of history, like trying to understand- what, hit- Why Hitler did what Hitler did. Yeah, so it's like looking at Hitler's childhood and everybody, like any famous person's childhood. So there's a number of these. There's ones where they did Jesus, they did Gandhi. As one does. Yeah, the various kings and queens of Europe and then some of the presidents, but they're tying together- different themes. And it almost has like a literary type approach where it's like, oh, this happened and this happened. So there's this thematic element in the childhood. Therefore, this adult behavior or dramatic historical event, the trauma of the 20th century or whenever is what happened. Yeah. And so a lot of the sub points. So they're very obsessed with childhood abuse Okay. They are very obsessed with toilet training. Well, that does sound like the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. There's a section about how changes in swaddling of infants brought about behavioral changes in human populations afterwards. And there's also a section about how like uh, the teaching around the mothers change things. But then there's also a section on Great Britain that's called a baby in every latrine. Oh, And so all of this is from this brochure. You're supposed to read it straight. It's not a joke. These The brochure was put out seriously, but it sounds like self-parody. Yeah. 
and it's very strange. Like, if you want to read some strange stuff, go find the journal. Well, I don't know if I want to do that, because all it makes me want to do is write a short story about something that happened in my childhood, which, to be fair, sometimes is a little bit of a Flannery O'Connor short story. <laughs> and then hypothesize what absurd historical event I might instigate based on this childhood trauma. It sounds like you could start a whole new subgenre of SF and fantasy where it could be... <laughs> Speculative fiction in predictive psychohistory? Uh-huh. I think this might be my great breakthrough. It might be. Only if I include a crocodile. <laughs> Crocodiles are a must. All right. And with that, as Gene Wolfe says, people don't want other people to be people.